0: Well, good morning. It's so good to be with you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Liam, and I'm married to Priska here in the front row. Now, we've been married six years in a couple of weeks' time. So actually, if we want to get to the heights, the lofty heights of the Carters, we've got another 39 years to go. So we've got a lot of work to do to get there. But yeah, so good to honour those guys this morning. And obviously, today is a monumental Sunday. It's Palm Sunday. As Vic said, we're now into Holy Week and we are on the lead up to Easter. So it goes without saying, we're gonna be looking at the account of Jesus entering Jerusalem, gonna be looking at Palm Sunday. But the first thing I wanna say is just a bit of a disclaimer, really. A lot of you, maybe even this week will have seen dramatizations of this, kids doing it in their play, in their classrooms, people laying down palm leaves. It's all very familiar to us. You'll have heard it many times. Some of you may not, which is great, because you'll, you'll approach this with fresh eyes this morning. But I just want to really provoke us that with these familiar passages, we can just go, great, you know, another Easter, another Palm Sunday, let's, let's go, let's get it, let's get through it. But I'd really like to challenge us to just see this with fresh eyes as if it's for the first time, because genuinely, We believe that God speaks to us when we open the Bible, different things each time. And there've been so many things that I've learned even in preparing for this that I hope I can share with you this morning. So I just encourage you, just come come to this as if you're reading it for the first time, amazing story. Um, And we're gonna be in Luke's gospel today. So there's gonna be a reason that I'll unveil to you as we go as to why I've chosen Luke, because some of you will know that actually all four gospel writers in the New Testament talk about and write about Jesus's entry on the cult, into Jerusalem, so it's well written about, they all have different flavours, they all emphasise different things, but I've gone for Luke's account for a particular reason, which will become clear, and really, if I could boil this down this morning to a question or two, what I'd really want to impress on you guys and ask you straight off the bat is this, what kind of king, in your mind, is Jesus, and is he a king worth following? Now for some of you, you may not actually have heard of Jesus before, you may be here for the first time. That's a great question for you to ask today with Easter coming up. Some of you have been Christian for 50 years and actually we need to understand that we need to recommit. We need to think, right, Easter's here again. Do I need to lay things down? Do I need to come to Jesus afresh? So that's my question to you. What kind of king is Jesus? And is he someone that I actually want to follow? Now as I already mentioned, we're going with Luke's account this morning. I'm gonna read it in a second. But another question for you, just according to you in your mind, have a minute, what makes a good king? Just ponder that. Some of you are already thinking about a figure you've seen on TV or a documentary or a monarch, whoever it is. Just have a think. Graham's thinking about football at the back. (laughs) I can see him (laughs) wondering. Just have a little think. So I thought rather than embarrassing people and getting you guys to come up to the front, I thought who better to ask this question to than our wise students. So we've got lots of students now in this church who should technically have the biggest and most active brains because they're studying, they're in lectures all day, they're writing assignments, whereas all of us are now, you know, we're decaying, everyone who's a bit older than that. But these guys should be in their prime of intellectual mode. So I thought I'd ask them what their answer is to the question. So this week I filmed a bit of a video with some of our students and some of our young professionals as well. And we're just going to play that now. Have a listen to what they think makes a good king. What I think makes a good king is somebody who listens to his people and truly cares about them and is going to do whatever is in their best interest. A good king puts his people over his comforts. For me, a good king would be a king who is kind, who is just. Um, and who uses his authority for the benefit of his people and his kingdom. I think a king um, is our protector, Um, so like back in the olden days they would go out and fight in battle. Don't think that happens anymore, Um, but you want your king to be able to protect um, their country and the land and the people that are in it. A good king is someone who respects God, respects his body, respects his people, who is wise, fair, non-judgmental, believes in equality and is trustworthy. The characteristics of a good king, I think, would be um, a king who's willing to put the needs of the people, the kingdom, um, before themselves. Okay, so there you go. Groundbreaking answers there. And the reason we just wanted to ask them was to just get you guys thinking, because it's all very subjective, of course, but I just find those answers fascinating and that there's lots of themes that come up over and over again. Isn't it interesting how we've actually made almost like these moral values in our mind. This is someone worth following if they are trustworthy, if they'll fight for me, if they'll protect me, if they are just, if they believe in equality. These are all things that we have in our hearts that we want to look for in our leaders. So as we come to view Jesus through that lens, I just thought it'd be helpful to just get you thinking, what do I actually feel Based on my experience, my role models, what actually makes a good king. And we're going to basically contrast that to what Jesus shows us in the New Testament. Now, it would only be fair for me to show you what I think uh, makes a good king and not get away with this myself. So, a few things that came to mind. I basically sat down with Prisca, and we've got Josh staying with us this week while he's here from the States. So, I just had a little brainstorm with them, and I said, guys, let's come up with three examples of kings. Firstly me, then Priska, then Josh. What do we think when it first comes to mind as to what makes a good king? And Angie, if you just want to show the picture, you'll see, right, these are our selections. So Priska's trying to already back out of this one, but she said, <laughs> off the bat, Mufasa from Lion King, because he's brave. Because ultimately he loses his life trying to protect his son, which I thought was quite profound. He is a bit of a you know, he's a great example of what it's like to actually own a territory, to be fierce and to be protective. So my one was Aragorn, Lord of the Rings fans fans will remember Aragorn. So he is that rugged, handsome warrior king, Rich Stamp-esque. So he's the kind of man that would fight for you. And obviously at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he's finally crowned. He's a guy who's a little bit of a loose cannon, finally walks into his true identity, is crown king. Everyone goes home happy, he gets married. And he is someone you'd want to follow, that warrior king through battle. And then Josh over here, Josh, why did you choose King T'Challa, the Black Panther, (laughs) Ha <laughs> yeah Yeah. that's a really good choice couldn't have said it better myself so these were our three examples and again there are some features there that you think typically we're looking for that warrior king we're looking for someone who's going to fight our battles for us lead from the front and I think we often have this traditional image of someone riding out chariots armies sword great fighter so just bear that in mind as you read this passage because it'll be pivotal So just before we do dive in, we're going to be in Luke 19, if you want to get ready for that. We're going to be verse 28 to 44. But just before we do, it's important to just give a little bit of context as to what Luke is doing here, what's happened before our chapter. So in a nutshell, Jesus in the chapters before this, in Luke 19, has basically been going around the local region and showing people who he is. So he's been proclaiming the gospel message, he's been saying the kingdom is here, I am the Messiah. He's been subtly dropping it in with miracles. We've had lepers who've been healed. We've had deaf people who've been healed. We've had encountered with the, the Jewish council. We've had the meeting with Zacchaeus. There have been some parables. There's been a whole load of things that Jesus has done in the surrounding area. But now it feels like, and Luke's gonna play on this, that we have a bit of a climax. So all of this has been going on, but finally, Jerusalem can no longer be avoided, it's the end game, it's the mission. Jesus knows that he needs to end up there in order to complete that mission. And so Luke's been bringing us this way for the last few chapters. Jesus has already said twice to his disciples, hey guys, I'm not going to be here for much longer. Do you realise that actually you've only got limited time with me? And they cannot understand what Jesus is saying. They do not understand the concept of Jesus being a Messiah who's actually going to leave them soon, he's going to give himself up, he's going to die for them. They struggle to understand these basic truths. And so he says it for a third time as we lead into this passage. So let's read the passage. So Luke 19, 28 to 44, it's going to come up behind me. And we have got Bibles jotted around if anyone would like one to have a physical. So verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. So lots to pick out there, lots going on. And very simply, I just wanted to pick out five characteristics of Jesus' kingship that I want you to put into your investigation this morning. Is Jesus worth following? What kind of king is he? Well, I'm going to give you five suggestions from this text that we can read into his character, what makes him tick, what defines his heart and hopefully that will inform us and help us see that Jesus is the king that we need. So firstly, I think clearly this text shows us that Jesus is a brave and courageous king. So why do I think this? Well, the fact that this account is even in the Bible, the fact that Luke has actually got something to write here and it's not just a load of blank pages, in my mind, needs an applause and I think, wow, Jesus, what an amazing thing you just did. To actually make this happen because I think if you put every single one of us in this room, in Jesus' situation, knowing what's going to happen, remember he knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem, he knew what he needed to do and how to get there, the journey was tough and we're going to come on to that in a minute physically, but I think all of us would do a Jonah, we'd be running the opposite direction, we'd go to the other side of the world, because who would want to go through all of this for the end result that we know Jesus is going to go for? Humanly speaking, that's crazy for people to actually strive for that. It says that he walked ahead of his disciples. They weren't dragging him with him. He was actually setting the pace and saying, this is, this is the mission I have. So I don't think we'd have done this. I think we'd have aborted the mission and this wouldn't, wouldn't actually be in the gospel at all. And we actually see this in the text. So this is the beauty of the parallel accounts. The fact that they all talk about Jesus's entry to Jerusalem means we can take different bits and compare because some of the details are highlighted in different authors. And we can see that there was a bit of an atmosphere of fear and uncertainty. This was not a confident home run. We're going to walk in with Jesus. We're going into Jerusalem. Let's get all our friends together. This is going to be a victory parade. There was a little bit of uncertainty and fear in the air. So it says this in Mark 10. So it's going to come up on the screen. I'm going to read basically half of it now. And then I'm going to complete this passage at the end. So you'll see where I'm going. But the first bit says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them so I've already mentioned Jesus is ahead of them he's leading them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid so the question is why would these people who were following Jesus part of his clan his disciples probably some locals from the surrounding area that also think oh I want to get in on this and see what happens see how it goes they were afraid so why were they afraid if it was a a sure conclusion. Well, I think, first off, we have to remember, Jesus is walking into a situation where the authorities wanted him dead. So if you read the Gospel, you'll know that throughout the whole of any of the Gospels, you choose them, Jesus is constantly coming up against opposition, against local authorities, against doubters, people who think he's a pretender. The Jewish authorities hated Jesus because he stood for everything that they did not want, They thought, this guy's a pretender. He is gonna lead people astray. We are the ultimate authority. People need to listen to us. He's doing miracles. He's got no right to do that. They were constantly looking to undermine him, and they ultimately wanted to get rid of him. If you said, I'll pay you X amount to get rid of him, they'd have bitten your hand off. They did not want him anywhere near Jerusalem or that region. They even say, we've read it, they ask him to basically shut up his disciples. Rabbi, rebuke your disciples. They did not want anybody uttering anything from the lips that would say that Jesus was anything more than just a crazy teacher. Now, we see in the previous chapter in Luke 18 that Jesus also fights back on that. It's not just a one-way attack, that actually Jesus is very clever in the way he talks about the Pharisees as well. So he actually tells a parable of a tax collector and a Pharisee in Luke 18, and he actually says that there is more righteousness in the heart of the tax collector than a Pharisee. So there's this constant just for position going on that Luke, again, is playing on here as a writer, that he's built this up, this climax. How are they gonna respond? Jesus is about to turn up in Jerusalem, the epicenter of Judaism. All the main leaders will be there. How is this gonna go down? There's fear for what's gonna happen. And then, of course, even worse than that, don't forget that Jerusalem at the time was occupied by the Romans. Now, the Romans were brutal. There would have been so much military strength and might. There was no freedom of expression. Even the Jewish leaders were just puppets for the Roman Empire at this point. So Jesus has got so many things to worry about. The people, the Jewish leaders who wanna get rid of him, and also the Romans, they believe that the emperor is God. They're not gonna have Jesus coming in saying these messianic claims either. So there's so much stacked against Jesus, and logic would say, don't do it. Which is why I said we would all do a Jonah and run off, quite rightly. And I think another reason for this fear is that Jesus was so publicly making an entrance. If you're a wanted man, a wanted woman, what do you do in real life? You hide. Put on a police chase, look on the documentaries. People are always trying to hide, that word fugitive. If you know that you're wanted, the last thing you're gonna do is waltz into that police station where everyone is. The last thing you're gonna do is be out in public, but again, This is not how Jesus operates. There was no option for Jesus to just slip into Jerusalem, to just go under the cover of darkness. He walked straight down the middle of the road. And this journey for Jesus was not an easy one. So you've got the mental fear of what's going to happen here, the weight of that, and then the physical journey itself. So I've got a map here which just shows because it's hard to gauge exactly what Jesus had to do to get to Jerusalem. So he was in Jericho, so this is not the Jericho of the walls coming down and the trumpets and Joshua, this is a different Jericho. But Jesus basically is in the the region nearby. We mentioned Bethlehem and Bethpage on the way through. And you'll see that towards the Mount of Olives, it's literally called Mount of Olives, it is an uphill climb in order for him to reach his destination. So as Luke is writing this climatic account of Jesus coming, there's an even bigger climax in that Jesus has literally trekked up here. You've literally got the Judean desert there. So it's desert-like conditions, not an easy walk. He's got a massive crowd behind him that are fearful and trembling. And he knows at the top of this hill is gonna be Jerusalem. So you could see it almost like being played out as a film. It's pretty epic in what Luke is doing. Now, Jesus doesn't get chauffeured and dropped off at the gates of Jerusalem. He doesn't get special treatment. He has to take himself there, literally, and that's why the cult comes in handy. But he's not treated like royalty at this point. Jesus is trekking, and again, we'd have got probably halfway up and said, no, thank you. This is a bit hot, this is a bit uncomfortable. I don't know if I'm going to be received well, so let's call it there, stop for lunch halfway up, let's have a review. But Jesus does not work that way. Who here has actually climbed something resembling a mountain before? Just stick your hand up if you're an impressive person like that. Is that it? Only a handful of people have climbed something resembling a hill, a mountain. No? I'll make it anything, a mound. Yeah. (laughs) Been Been to Studland. Okay, that's a start. Well, you should know then that when you get to the top, there is a great sense of achievement. And I'm so glad I've done this. But imagine if you got to the top of your destination and you knew there was a high chance when you got to the top of Ben Nevis or whatever you're going, that people are going to reject you, they might hurl abuse at you, some people would literally want to physically put their hands on you, you may get arrested. Would you make that journey? So you've got the actual reason for going, then you've got the physical terrain, and you just realise how, when Jesus, it says, Jesus stepped out in front of the disciples, just how incredibly courageous that was. So just to illustrate this, back in 2012, I would say I climbed, but it wasn't a climb. I walked up Table Mountain So uh, that's me and my cricket team. We went to Cape Town, South Africa for a cricket tour. And just before anyone makes any judgments about the unathletic nature of us looking like a bit of a pub team, um, the, the gentleman at the front was actually our umpire. So he was not part of the playing 11 before you start saying I'm not very good at cricket. So we were there, that's us, Robin Island, where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned, Overlooked the bay, that is Table Mountain. And for me, I got halfway up, it's about 30 degrees, so nice and warm, and I genuinely got halfway up, and I fell apart, my teammates were like, see you later, and I genuinely thought I'm going to have to go down and take the cable car, which was the ultimate sign of embarrassment at that point. And all that was waiting for me at the top was an amazing view of the bay, incredible sense of achievement, and some really nice ice cream from Cape Town. That was what I was going towards, and I still struggled to find it within me to combat that and be like, do you know what, I'm going to keep persevering. I genuinely thought, I don't know if I can do this. So now imagine what Jesus was going through and the cost that he knew that was coming. A million times more than I ever faced, but he kept on going, he kept persevering, and he got to Jerusalem. So my second point is this. I didn't really know where to go with this and how to label it. So it was going to look neat on there. But in my notes, it's Jesus is a powerful slash sovereign slash promised slash preordained king because I couldn't make up my mind. So a lot of this has got to do with the cult and the donkey. So I love this about Jesus that he was completely in control. We've said actually there's a bit of terror here coming along and people are unsure. But Jesus continues to just walk straight down that line he is in full control of the situation and he shows it to us here so he told the disciples exactly where the cult was going to be he knew precisely its location he knew that it would be tied up how did jesus know it would already be tied up and ready he said that it had never been ridden which it hadn't and he also said how to secure it he used the exact words the disciples would need to use to tell the owner to get the right response so I love the, the bit about the fact that the, the donkey, the colt, has never been ridden. And obviously this is just an echo of it, it needing to be pure for a sacred task. So we see that a lot in the Old Testament. You read through numbers. Purity means unblemished. If you have an animal, it needs to be unblemished. This is a donkey that's never been ridden. So it's perfect, it's right for a task like this, for a royal king like Jesus. Some people say there, would, there may have been a prearranged password that these disciples would have been set to this maybe Jesus knew the people they were going to and he'd already visited them and say oh I'm going to send some friends your way can you release this cult but actually I think that's underestimating the power of King Jesus that actually if he wants a cult this is his kingdom then actually people will do exactly what he wants he is sovereign he's in control there's no debate here Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen it's already been prophesied and that brings on to a a really interesting point because the disciples then set Jesus on the colt. Notice he doesn't climb onto it and they don't like push him over the top. He's set upon it. So the disciples recognize this is a holy, righteous man. This is a king and we're going to treat him as such. So they set him on it. That's literally what we would do for our royalty now. Imagine that the queen used to step up and you would help her hold up a can't touch a hand but you would help someone or you'd open the car door for the president you would do something that shows you know what you are of this status and i'm in service of you i respect you and that's what these disciples are doing so although they don't understand jesus the fact that he said i'm not going to be here for much longer they know that he's the messiah they have recognition there and i've mentioned it was it was prophesied if we look at zechariah 9 verse 9 it says exactly what ended up happening on the entry to Jerusalem it says rejoice greatly daughter Zion shout daughter Jerusalem see your king comes to you righteous and victorious lowly and riding on a donkey on the colt the foal of a donkey so this was prophesied that this would happen this is how the messiah was to come and the people of Israel we have to understand the context they've been waiting a long time for someone to come and rescue them they've been waiting for that messiah some Jews today are still waiting for Jesus to come And this is what Jesus comes as. Now, this is really really important because they didn't realize that he was gonna come as a sacrificial lamb, as a humble person to offer himself. They thought he'd be a mighty king. And this leads really nicely onto point number three, which is that he is a humble king. So the humility, again, is shown in this cult and the method that Jesus uses to come to Jerusalem. So in many ways, Jesus was the unexpected king and he was the king that no one wanted. Now, again, when I, talk, when I say that, I mean in history, the Jewish people had constantly been oppressed. Think about right now, they were under Roman rule, they wanted nothing more than for someone to come and wipe out the Romans, liberate Jerusalem, let's get back to doing things the way we want to do. And so they were thinking, oh, this figure is gonna be that person. Think about all the things the Jewish people have been through. They've been through slavery in Egypt, they've been through the wilderness, they've been captured by Babylon, just constantly things are happening where their control is taken from them and they're finally thinking yes give us a warrior king they know this messiah is going to be coming from the line of david the line of jesse so they're thinking oh give if i can place my order right now i want a king david that'd be amazing chariots the lot kills thousands of people see you later romans that's what they would have ordered if you'd asked them that was their concept but this is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus does not see things the way that we do. Thank goodness for that. Um, Tim Keller says it really nicely when he sums up what Palm Sunday is all about. He says, Palm Sunday is an incredible parable of the lifelong mismatch of what we think we need and what God has provided. So this just made me think. You know, Jesus didn't bring his chariots. He didn't bring an angel of armies, which he easily could have done. Instead, he, roll, he rode in on a colt on a foal, as a sign of peace. That's not a sign of violence. He could have rocked up in an amazing war horse and a chariot, but instead he came in something so lowly, so meek, so humble, because that is what defines him. He's humble at the very core of who he is. So it made me think, how many times a week in my life, how many times a week in your life do you tell God, Lord, this is how I'd like it this week, this is coming up and I'd really like you to show up for me in this way please. If you could answer this family problem or this financial problem, yeah if you could just sort that out by next Monday that'd be perfect, thank you very much. And then how often do we look back in hindsight and we are so grateful that God didn't listen to what we wanted and he actually did it his way. The amount of times I look back in hindsight and I'm so grateful that I didn't get the job that I wanted at the time or actually I didn't pursue someone that I shouldn't have done, or actually family relationship, if I'd said those things that I wanted to, that would have been damaging. God knows what he's doing, but it's not the way that we are wired, and we need to understand that. The, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Um, another really helpful quote here from um, Joe Capollo, who is a, um, he's basically a co-author of the Africa Commentary Bible, and he says this, which I think will help us pad this out more nationalistic hopes for freedom or redemption from occupation ran high at the major festivals in Jerusalem. The arrival of a prophet from Galilee, already linked to messianic claims and deeds like the feeding of the 5,000, would naturally fuel expectations that independence was near. The crowds in Jerusalem would probably have preferred the Messiah to be riding in on a war horse. So you can't get any more clear than that. Jesus threw out the stereotypes He threw out the expectations. He was not a people pleaser. If you asked the people of Jerusalem how they wanted him to enter, it wasn't anything like that. It would have been completely different. But he's all about humility and peace. He's a king of peace. He's a humble king, and that's what we desperately need. Just look at the world now. We desperately need peace. Like The way of violence clearly doesn't work. Just coming in and taking over territory and destroying what was there clearly does not work. So Jesus presents a different message, of humility not of weakness but like I said in our mind when we think of a king we often think of that warrior king the Hollywood king that's the world's message to us but actually Jesus's kingdom is completely different Jesus is also a winsome king so in verse 36 it says that many people laid down precious garments on the road And we imagine this being a mix of his existing party, the people who came with him into Jerusalem, and also the locals. So people are getting caught up in this from all sides. It's not just one group or another. And they lay down cloaks. Now, this is another reason that I chose Luke's Gospel, because some of the other Gospels talk about palm leaves, which is what the default we'd all go to, which has great significance for a Jewish audience. But I love the fact that Luke talks about cloaks, something that we can relate to quite easily in the garments we wear. And the fact that these were laid down It shows the cost of what these people were willing to do to say, I'm all in. And I just want to unpack what that would actually look like in that culture. Because some of you who've lived in the Middle East will be aware, the evenings are cold. Think about Arabian nights, think about nights around the desert. They are very cold. Temperatures plummet. So for you to not have a cloak readily available was a big, big problem. That was a big deal. For us now, we think, oh, it's fine, I've got eight coats at home, no worries. But those people would have been carrying what they owned, would have been precious to them. And these people literally laid down their cloaks, not just for a show, not just symbolically. The actual donkey would have gone over the cloaks. We're in the dust here. We're not on Pool High Street. We're in the dust. People trampling over it for a few hours. You're probably not going to get your cloak back. So think about that. These people have said, you know what? my earthly comfort what i'm wearing right now is actually less important to me than the commitment so they've chosen commitment over comfort by laying down their precious cloaks which i just wanted to focus on rather than the palm leaves i just thought that was really helpful for us this morning so there's a question for us this morning here are we all in this morning we've got a week until easter so you've got time here to process this before reach gives our killer preach on sunday about easter sunday But actually, some of you may need to lay down some things in your life, recommit yourself to Christ this Easter. Have you been coasting? Do you actually understand what Easter is about? Is it just a bit of tradition to you? There's some things that we may need to say, do you know what, I want to relay out and say to Jesus, I'm gonna give you all of me, because some of us are probably holding back some cloaks, holding back some stuff. I want Jesus, but also I've got one foot in, one foot out. I think that's a really good challenge for us this morning. What are we hanging on to this Easter? And I love that people sang praise to Jesus. So the disciples got this going in verse 37. They said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's an echo from a psalm, a blessing in the psalms. And they actually call him king. That's the other reason why I chose Luke, is because he uses the word king in these praises. So these people understand that this man here is the king. He's my king. By putting down my robes, I'm saying, Jesus... You're going to be the king of my heart now, above all else. And we do that a lot, don't we? For celebrities, we have the red carpet. Like, you watch the Grammys or you watch whatever it is on TV. Always have the red carpet. And these are people that, really, in the grand scheme of things, you know, they get so much more respect than they deserve. Like, you make a decent film and everyone just worships you. It's like, yeah, the Brad Pitts, the Beyoncé's. It's like, really? In like 500 years' time, it's just a person. But we absolutely love and adore them and we roll out a red carpet for them every single time. It's a respect. That's what we do. And that's exactly what the cloaks are are offering up here. A respect for someone who has high status. And I love Jesus' response to those who weren't won over by his entry. So we've mentioned the fact that the Jewish rulers said, Rabbi, will you tell your lot to be quiet? They cannot say this. This is blasphemy. And he says to them, well, I'm sorry, but if they don't praise me, then the very stones will cry out. All of us made here today were designed to worship Jesus. We worship so many other things. Even creation itself, everything is designed to point back to Jesus. Now we lose sight of that because we're human, we're sinful, the world is very different. But you're ultimately here to worship Jesus. You're not, here, you're not here at church today for a social club or to have a nice coffee or go to kids' work, do a bit of babysitting. It's not about that at all. You're here to encounter Jesus and worship him. That's your identity. And Jesus is saying, well, if they don't, something else is going to, because everything, everything is geared towards my kingship. It's undeniable. And ultimately, I think the need is the same today. So people responded then... And we might look back at that and say, oh, okay, yeah, Judaism is very different, culture of Jerusalem, but we need this just as much as the people did on that Palm Sunday. We're not gonna get a procession down the streets this Sunday, but it's the same call to the gospel that all of us need to think in our hearts this Easter. Is there something, is there business I need to do with God? Do I need to look at the cross again? Do I need to come back to what I used to believe in? And hopefully that challenges us. And finally, I just wanna talk about Jesus being a just king because there's a little bit of a change of temperature here that Luke writes about. You might be thinking, hang on, this was all very joyous, people were praising, and then all of a sudden, we've now got a weeping Jesus, and we've got some harsh words being said, and it's all destruction, it feels like war. What on earth is going on? Is this in the right place in the gospel? Well, simply put, you have to think ultimately a week later, Jerusalem is gonna be the cause of Jesus going to the cross. So the majority of people are not receptive to Jesus. The authorities are going to get their way. They're going to get their hands on Jesus and ultimately he's going to be rejected. He is the stone that we rejected. And so there are lots of people there lauding him, loving him, praising him but ultimately what Jesus is saying here is that Jerusalem has missed the boat. And what he foreshadows as a result is that they are going to have some tough times because they've not recognised Jesus' coming. It says in verse 44, you did not recognise God's coming to you. So this is a question for us all. We have a choice today, and if we choose to not be in God's kingdom, then we are left to our own devices. Jerusalem missed the boat. The Messiah literally walked down the road and was in their midst, and they still did not see him for who he was. And the penalty for that... God doesn't smite them on the spot. He doesn't tell the disciples to go and grab people and we're going to take them hostage. He says, do you know what? Okay, I'm going to leave you to history. I know what's coming because I'm king and I'm sovereign. I'm powerful, as you've already touched on. But actually, you've got a choice to make. And the people of Jerusalem chose, no, thank you. We're going to do our own thing. And so what he's actually foreshadowing here is in AD 70, there's a Jewish revolt, which again is the story of the Jewish people. They're never happy being occupied. And in the end, they take things into their own hands, and the Romans crush them as a result. So when it says lay siege, that's what the Romans did around Jerusalem. And they basically crushed the Jew, the Jewish revolt, and destroyed the temple. So Jesus knows this. He knows it's coming. And he's tried to prevent this, and people have not accepted him. So Jesus is genuinely beside himself. It's not like a Hollywood-esque tear down one cheek, when actually he's like, oh, they're going to get it now. He genuinely is torn over this because he loves every individual. He wants every individual for himself. He wants you to be in his kingdom. He's not going to force you. He's not an invader. He's not going to come and invade and force you under his will. It's a choice. He wants you to say, I I want to lay down my cloak and be in your kingdom. So I've already mentioned next week, Rich is going to be showing us the victorious king. So I I just love how God works in terms of some of these points, moving into what Rich is going to talk about next week. You'll see the whole flow. Obviously, Matt will talk about Good Friday, and you'll get a whole picture of Holy Week and actually what Jesus has come to do for you today. And I just want to leave us with this, really, that ultimately Jesus knew that the will for his life was to save us from our sin by going to Jerusalem, not as a champion, not as a hero, but to submit ultimately to what would be his death. But that wouldn't be the end. In my mind, I just think, what, could you, what more could you want from a God who's willing to come to earth for you, be born and raised as a man, spend his life basically trying to tell you about his kingdom and how much he loves you, and then he's actually going to die for you so that you can know his father and have eternal life with him. In terms of like a proposition, I don't see much else going around that would better that at all. Jesus' offer is unique, it is powerful, it is life-changing. And the people of Jerusalem had that choice, just as we do today. So I'm just going to quickly revisit that Mark passage that we had up earlier. And I'm going to finish it off to show the hope that we have. So the second half of Mark 10 says this, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So this is, the gospel, this is literally the gospel message. I deliberately break in half, so I didn't want you to get the whole thing at the start but that is literally the gospel message. That is what Palm Sunday and Easter is all about. That's what Good Friday is all about. That is why we are here, saved today. So my offer to you is, how are you gonna respond this Easter? Are you ready to praise Jesus, lay down your cloak? If he actually does what you want him to do as a king, are you gonna box him and say, as long as you're like this, King Jesus, as long as you're brave, or as long as you bless me financially or my health, then I'm in. But actually, when times get tough, and I need to track up a mountain with you, I'm out of here? Or are we actually going to say, do you know what? Whatever happens, I'm going to stand up in Jerusalem. I'm going to be counted as one of your followers. Think of the cost for those followers in Jerusalem on the side of the road. Some of those locals, they'd have been there for the Passover. The city would have been absolutely teething with people. It's a massive festival. A massive time of Jewish unity coming together. If you then say, Jesus, I love you, and put your cloak down... Like the the shame culture, the response you would get, the very least you're going to be alienated from your friends and family for doing that. You may be arrested, you may be beaten, you may be killed, you may be sent away to go live somewhere else. There is a huge cost to what these people did. And it's the same for us. We don't get an easy road. It's a sacrificial life that we live for Jesus, but he's already gone. He strode out in front of his followers. He leads the way, he's done it for us but there is a commitment for us this Easter. So if you're a believer here this morning, firstly, you need to rejoice. It says in verse 37, they rejoiced for all the works that God had done. Read back through Luke. Think of all the amazing miracles Jesus has done. Think about how he saved you in your life. Think about your testimony. And then actually Easter is a celebration of, I now actually am an adopted son and daughter of God. That should be your primary focus at Easter. Wow, what an amazing faithful God I have again, like I said, some of you, while holding that tension, also might think, Do you know what? I need to recommit this morning. There's things I need to lay down. I want prayer for this or that. There's things that I haven't quite given over to God. I'm not willing actually to be public about my faith because I don't want to be shamed by the people. A whole host of things could be going on this morning. But this is an amazing time. Holy Week is an amazing time to get back our perspective and to focus on Jesus. And if you're someone who's not A churchgoer today and you're thinking what on earth is all this about sounds a bit crazy well the truth is the king has come imagine you're on that side of the road he's already come and you have a choice to make the gospel doesn't give us an opportunity to just be I'm a bit lukewarm towards this you're either all in laying your cloak down or you're rejecting and you're going your own way so all I can urge you to do this morning is to think about Is this king worthy of being followed? Do you want a humble king? Do you want a courageous king? Do you want a king who loves you and is just? Do you want a winsome king who actually communicates well, who loves his people, who loves community? Because ultimately, Jesus just wants to give us peace. That picture of the the cult, take that home with you today, that cult. Jesus is all about peace. His kingdom is peace. He doesn't want war. He wants you to have peace with him and peace with his father and that's the only place we can find it and ultimately I just want to rack these off really Jesus is courageous he's humble he's powerful he's winsome and he's just there is no king on earth like that so much corruption but we have a perfect king in Jesus so let's remember that this Easter that's the kingdom we need and it's genuinely ours it is coming it has come this next week we're going to hear a lot more about what Jesus has done for us. But you can accept him this morning in whatever shape you're in and lay that down and say, Jesus, I want you to be the king of my heart this morning. Okay, I'm just going to finish by praying. the band would like to come back up. Yeah, King Jesus, we thank you so much for just your amazing example, your sacrificial leadership, The fact that you are holy and just, that you are so powerful, that we can have confidence in who you are, and that you walked into Jerusalem yourself, humble, full of love for people. And we thank you so much that we get to sit here as sons and daughters of you, that Easter is an amazing time of celebration. And would you help us just get our hearts right before you this week, to use this Holy Week to think, Lord, what do I need to lay down? How do I get excited about Easter once again? What are the things that I'm carrying? And I just pray that you would help us to rejoice like those disciples did this Easter, that we would get alongside all those people saying, you are worthy, Hosanna, you're the greatest king. You're worthy of our praise. And we just thank you that you are the perfect king. You've saved us and we have eternal life with you. We know that even deeply this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.